Right. We've also made clear neither of our wives listen to the show. Yep. <laughs> also, we're not friends. <laughs> well, yeah, obviously. Live from the Mundangerous Sunless Citadel in New York City, I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Ishan. And welcome to episode 139 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're talking about how to take old published adventures and tweak them to fit your group. But first the rogue traders get even more scared in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign. And later, the master of the midnight hunt stalks the darkness in the character creation forge. So the Sunless Citadel in New York City, that's just a basement, right? (laughs) I mean, it could also be on the 45th floor with uh, no southern exposure. Okay, yeah. I mean, (laughs) I I like the basement, you know, full of dire rats. (laughs) Pizza rats down there named Boss. Dire pizza rats, yes. (laughs) Uh, So this episode is running uh, right before April comes around, which means that we are not far from May. So... We would... That was a reach. <laughs> <laughs> Again, there. I'm trying to give you guys a lead up, okay? Because we would like your input. Uh, during the month of May, there will be five Thursdays in May this year, and we are going to do our first, I don't know, maybe last, Any May, where all of the builds in the Character Creation Forge will be based on anime characters. Are you serious? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We're doing this? Yep. But I mean, you know, Shane, you're doing this? Shane, look at it this way. It also means that we don't have to do anime any other time of the year. Okay. We All actually right. get a lot of requests for anime characters, and half the time we're like, okay, who is that? We're going we to look them up. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a huge gap in my understanding of anything in the world. I So I, <laughs> it's tough for us to do anime characters in general. I like that you have signed up to create five anime <laughs> characters for the Character Creation Forge. But I don't know what I'm going to build yet. So if you have requests, get them in, because we're doing five <laughs> and probably won't do any more until next year. <laughs> Yeah, that also means that as I introduce these characters, I will be totally just talking from Wikipedia <laughs> or TV tropes. That's perfect. It'll basically be uh, like the Wikipedia episodes of uh, Expounded Universe. Okay, perfect. Right? <laughs> just... yeah. I read about this thing, and now I'm going to tell you about it. <laughs> That's basically what we're doing for the alignment episodes, right? It's like, <laughs> open up TV tropes and see who has this alignment. Oh, everyone has this alignment. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, Batman's in there, so we're safe. Done. All right, speaking of things Shane wants to avoid, Shane, where are we in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign? So the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign is our Warhammer 40k Rogue Trader game played using Dark Heresy 2nd Edition rules by Fantasy Flight Games. And on the Dead World Malajact, the Rogue Traders and their two best companies of armsmen have located the Verza House, an ancient obsidian fortress once occupied by the fallen Dark Angel, Lord Cypher. They have spent the day on edge exploring the abandoned fortress and have now settled in for the night. And your psyker, astropath, Flare, has been awoken by visions of a great albino worm eating through the earth. Same. And your seneschal, Trix, has had a uh, a vivid bad dream of his own. Yeah, he, in this dream, is walking the halls of the Verzer house, which are lit with a soft light, even though it's nighttime. And he's chasing a shadow. Yeah, and he's uh, he's following it through these winding, twisting passages and corridors. You know, uh, it's a confusing, confusing construction. 
and after after a while he's pretty much lost but he determines that the shadow is in fact the old dame um the the one from the portrait that he defaced earlier that day in the great hall oh you mean the portrait that he touched and then it started bleeding uh well that's what he says i mean not too loudly but that's what what he suspects Uh, everyone else saw that it was just dust you know kind of uh crumbling down the face as he had torn a hole in it so she's wearing an austere black dress this gauzy black shawl she looks elegant but she's aged just the way she does in the portrait, even though the portrait is, what, 8,000 years old? Uh, well, yeah, between 2 and 10. Six, okay, yeah. yeah. So average <laughs> 6,500 <laughs> yeah. years. Right. And as he's chasing her in the dream, he eventually ends up in the lower casement defensive positions where Captain Az's platoon is standing watch. Yeah, and, and he, he stumbles upon them, right? They insist that they saw nothing of this old dame who who must have come through here as he followed um and and Trix does have the presence of mind to realize he sounds crazy and he is definitely kind of rattling the troops a little bit. So he shifts approaches and tries to question them uh without raising their suspicions, sort of um pretending this is more or less a routine inspection. Yeah, he orders some reports from the men, they dispatch a runner to pass the order along, but as the runner rounds a corner, a shadow emerges and starts chasing after him. So Trix shouts a warning. And awakens to find Archmilitant Draco is shaking him. Uh, this is now the second time that Draco has been awoken by his idiot comrades. And uh, and it's not like his own sleep was very restful because it was also filled with miserable visions of dried skulls in a dusty valley. Um, but he is kind of over this now. Uh, you know, like tricks making noise, like g- g- get it together, man. But as morning is approaching... They vow to get to the bottom of this. Whatever this stupid house is doing. I hate this house. Let's get out of this house. And we'll find out what happens next. Next week. So this week we're talking about adapting published adventures. We talked about how to run them back in episode 42. So this time we're going to be going a lot more in depth about how to tweak them to suit the particular needs of your gaming group. So this is really good timing for this episode because friend of the show, James Intracasso, just ran a successful Kickstarter for his adventure, uh, a level 1 to 20 campaign called The Demon Plague. I thought it was Intracasso. Intracasso, Intracasso. As somebody whose name is rarely pronounced correctly. I, I have no idea. I never get people's name. names right. <laughs> <laughs> I have literally no idea how to pronounce your last name, but also I don't care. Yeah, but I get called Sean all the time too. So, <laughs> really? like, it's like last name. But there's, might, a, there's might, literally yeah. an e on the end, uh-huh. which makes the a a hard a. Uh huh. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. that's how English works. Yeah, but my name is not important to other people. I see. I see. Okay. And therefore, other that's people's fair. names not important to me. No one gets mine wrong. <laughs> no, never. Yeah. <laughs> my favorite is when they say, "How do you spell it?" And I go, "It's not going to help you." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in a Chinese fashion. <laughs> So congrats on getting funded, James. So most groups use a pre-written module or an adventure path um, that's, you know, coming out of Cobalt Press or Wizards of the Coast uh, because it's easier. You know, you don't have to create your own plot, your own NPCs, your own enemies, magic items. You don't have to make your own maps or come up with your own puzzles. But just as often, groups run into trouble using those pre-written adventures because it's, it's not, it doesn't end up being as fun as they hoped it would be when they're running it by the book. 
Yeah, so many horror stories that you hear about for games involve、uh, a DM running a published adventure, but not really bringing it to life, right? Kind of it staying flat on the page because they're they're adhering too closely to what's written. Yeah, this isn't the GM's fault. You know, they are they're doing what it says on the box. You know, and it's just not working. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> which like honestly isn't isn't really that fair. Um, and it especially happens with older modules. So we're going to talk about first off how to fix some of the problems that you run into when you、uh, run a module as written. The first one is that often they're just too long. The module itself, the adventure path, is too long, or you end up with too much slogging through a dungeon. You know,、uh, everyone I think who's run through. Um, adventure paths. I think fourth edition really had this problem, especially in Dungeons and Dragons, where you essentially spent、uh, multiple sessions, four or five sessions, in the same dungeon doing the same things. We take a left. We carefully open a door. We kill the monsters inside. We barricade the door, and we attempt to take a rest. And now we have forty more rooms of this. Right.、Uh, and meanwhile, like. The plot that has engaged all the characters and captured their imagination is basically on pause because they've got to slog through this before they can move forward with it. Right, and there's no way to get from here to wherever you're trying to get, except by going through all of this. Yeah, and that that's not just a fourth edition problem.、Um, I mean, that's a a problem even in the five、uh, E starter adventure. It's just like there's a lot of dungeon there. Yeah, totally. And you know, if you did just straight up skip the dungeon, well, now you're missing out on loot and you're missing out on XP. Yeah, it's it's a problem. So one thing you can do right off the bat is reduce the dungeon complexity, or just eliminate that labyrinth factor that you get in so many modules. So if you actually look at a dungeon map, it's usually just five or six interesting locations that are scattered throughout a boring maze. So just get rid of the maze. You know, replace it with a simplified map that offers two to three paths that lead directly to the interesting locations you want your players to get to anyway. Yeah, or don't bother replacing the map and just narrate past the boring locations,、mm-hmm. right? Like, so、uh, we talked about this in. Was it? We have so many episodes right yeah, now. I don't. <laughs> I, I don't. We. I know we talked about this in an episode where you just kind of narrate past the boring piece with a skill check, right? So you do your exploration skills, and that gives you the boring parts of the map, and you've kind of narrowed down to the interesting choices that you have to make. Yeah. So you're at the entrance to the dungeon, rather than you know presenting them with graph paper or making them map it out and be like, okay, so the corridor to the left is ten feet wide, and You know, it's a T junk. You know, instead of going through all that, just say you can go left or right. To the left, there's a long path.、Uh, to the right, it goes around a corner. Pick one. They pick one. Great. The left goes to a dark lake. The right goes to an armory. You don't need to say, you know, how long the corridor was or like how many dead ends they went to. If there were five dead ends, great. They would run into the dead ends and then backtrack. Yeah. Yeah. You just say you go past, you know, a winding series of of dead ends,、uh, a cave in, and you come to a dark lake. Right, I mean, I'm at the point now where I don't even bother with maps.、Um, my my dungeons exist as flowcharts. <laughs> yeah. Right. So you know they're and they just exist as decision trees. So、um, the you know as I've just followed down my flowchart, you make the next decision.、Um, you can always backtrack that sort of stuff.、Um, yeah. If if left, then dark lake. Right. <laughs> <laughs>、uh, and I will just make up cool stuff on the way that kind of appeals to what the players seem to be interested in.、Mm-hmm. 
Uh, you can do theater of the mind for this travel if you want to get it as, as evocative as you want. Uh, you, there's definitely no need to, to continually map each square unless your party really, really loves that. Yep. And then when you do get to an individual location that needs sort of that drilled in focus, then you bring the battle map out for that location. So the map is now a room instead of an entire dungeon. And then once you've gotten to a point where, you know, they visited the lake, they visited the armory, they've gotten to the the forge and all those things, just fast travel between those locations if they need to backtrack. Yeah, unless something would prevent them from doing that, in which case that should be an interesting challenge for them, right? Like uh, the other adventuring party hot on your heels crosses your path in one of those hallways. What do you do? Yeah, it also makes your life easier when you need those coincidences to happen. Right, yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> if they're staring at the map in front of them, they can be like, wait, but those there's no way for them to get from here to there. If it's all in your head. You'd right. be like, no, no, there is. You don't see every angle. This is the uh, the movie framing approach to dungeon crawling. Right. Um, what's that scene in Justice League where like Batman jumps on a parademon and uh, it's like, flown all around the city and then finally he stabs it and like jumps off it and lands back on the exact same roof that yeah. he was on before i was watching the avengers actually and the same thing happens it's oh, like, yeah. oh i fall from the sky and land right next to my friends yeah I, well that's how gravity works <laughs> right <laughs> new york city isn't that big <laughs> right it's yeah. <laughs> you, you jump off a traveling alien you're liable to land on, on a rooftop might as well be the same rooftop as your friends i don't know <laughs> it's a Chekhov's rooftop like if I wasn't going to land on it, why would why, I? Why would it be why there? Why would they be there? Right. <laughs> um, so another issue you can run into is that your players hit a bottleneck in the plot due to a puzzle or um, a non-obvious choice. Right? Just something like the difficulty stumps them. Yeah, we talked about this in uh, failing forward. Um, you can't always guarantee that your players are going to succeed at one particular check. Are they going to talk to the right NPC or say the right thing to an NPC? And so many modules are basically, ah, if the players talk to the tavern keeper and, and happen to mention a different town, the tavern keeper will say, ah, I have a brother there and you should speak to him. And that's the only way to get that information. Yeah. Instead, you want to look for ways to get them that information. Yeah, exactly. Present the alternatives. If the mayor of the town is killed in a goblin attack, okay, they elect a replacement and that person has the same information. Right, yeah. How fortunate that they elected a well-informed alternative. Yeah, or if the quest giver is a lowly farmer and they die or run off or whatever, or, you know, your chaotic neutral uh, player has uh, pissed them off and they don't want to talk to you, great. Maybe their farmer's husband or the farmer's sister offers that info instead. Or what if the module has delineated only one way to get to the Storm Giant Castle, and that is through the Mountain Pass. In fact, there's a whole section called Going Through the Mountain Pass, but your players for some reason have decided that they really don't like the Mountain Pass, uh, they really hate uh, the cold, Right. Uh, <laughs> they really don't like heights, Yep. they want to go a different way, and they refuse to take the Mountain Pass. Yeah. Um, you got a problem. Yeah, I mean, they are voting as uh, like in front of you right they're saying we don't want to do the mountain pass right that scares us we are looking for any alternative all you have to do is take that mountain pass series of encounters and reskin them for some other way right so um, if they choose to fly overhead that mountain pass now becomes a series of uh, airborne encounters right very similarly on the deck of an airship or if they decide to 
Um, you know, look if if the dwarves have any pass through. Well, now you're in a Mines of Moria situation. Very, very similar difficulty encounters, but now they're skinned for the environment they have chosen. Yeah, I didn't want you to take the mountain pass anyway. In fact, there's too much snow, and only the elf can stand on the snow. Right. So there's no way through. You've got to take the mines. I, and, and that's the thing, right? Like, that's the... That's what gives players that sense of like, wow, my DM is so good. They just like no matter what idea we came up with, they just roll with it. It's totally because you took what you had and you just sort of changed the scenery a bit. Yeah, the mountain pass encounter said, ah, halfway through, there's an avalanche. Well, now it's a cave-in. Right. (laughs) Or, you know, uh, a storm if you're going high. Yeah, just take those roadblocks and reskin them. Take the enemies that they face and reskin them. You know, you're not going to face the storm giants if you're going underneath the tunnels. You may actually face those same storm giants if you're taking an airship, though. Right. And then also allow them to use creative solutions. So if they use lateral thinking, um, let them do it, right? So if they're not getting the puzzle figured out, you can either prompt them through some skill checks or maybe you just let them bash down the door uh, and that pulls another encounter forward or maybe makes it a little more difficult. Yeah, there are a lot of old modules. I think like Hidden Shrine is really bad for this where the quote-unquote answer to the puzzle is, you know, you got to move a particular, you know, character in a um in a mural, right? right? And there's literally no other way to get through the door like the module says, you can't deal damage to the door and you can't bypass the door. Like it's just it and it stops being an actual door and and becomes a bottleneck in the story <laughs> yeah I so mean, just don't do that how do i get this magic door home with me because i want to put it on my safe <laughs> right <laughs> can i turn it into armor right yeah, exactly <laughs> like, this door is dope as hell <laughs> right like a wish can't handle this door <laughs> right a, as written no it can't <laughs> so the alternative is don't make it impervious to damage uh let them work on it yeah, and however they get through, great, that has repercussions. It might be very loud to smash through. That's totally fine. Maybe it has some traps on it. Great. You know, you have caused something interesting to happen rather than them sitting there. You know, And yeah, maybe they would have done it with no damage or very quietly if they'd figured out the mural puzzle. But yep. they don't have to now. And, and then another way to just handle that is, yes, they can smash it. Yes, they can pick the lock, whatever it is. When they get to the other side provide some indicator of what the solution was and so that the punishment that they have for not completing the puzzle is you had to tell them the answer that's plenty of punishment yeah <laughs> like, oh. oh it's so obvious now but we're still moving forward but i feel bad that we didn't figure it out move right. on and we're not stuck in this stupid room for an entire session because that's the real penalty <laughs> right <laughs> for everybody yeah so another problem you can run into with uh, especially some of the more modern adventure paths is that they're too open or too sandboxy. Um, they, they're they very large in scope, and they might not provide enough um, linear direction for the characters to sort of glom onto and follow along. Yeah, I know a lot of people actually really like adapting the Baldur's Gate games into their campaigns, but those are such open worlds about like where you can go and what you're going to find. Yeah, and it, like I know when I played Baldur's Gate the first time, I was like, cool, I have no idea what to do next. I would like to go to the next point in the story. Could somebody please like light that on the map for me? <laughs> right. <I laughs> have, need... have plot will give. <laughs> <laughs> I need an exclamation point somewhere. Right. Icewind Dale was easier for that because it was like, oh, just click the next point on, on this surface map. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Baldur's Gate was, 
yeah, you can go in that direction. You're going to die. Right. <laughs> 13 wolves attack. Great. Right. right. That's, well, that's why everyone has to have longbows. So and this is one of the benefits of, you know, a big adventure. The staging ground or like the initial town that you start in is often really huge. There are dozens of named NPCs. Um, Tomb of Annihilation, one of the most recent, recent paths from Wizards of the Coast. Uh, you basically start in a city in Chult and the first section of the book is laying out the city and all the different side quests. I think there's like 14 different side quests you could, a first level character can choose from. Um, there are at least nine like merchant princes plus a bunch of other random NPCs. There is so much to do in this town. Yeah. I, Storm King's Thunder is the same way. Like after the initial um, town that you start in, like you end up with five quests with no way of prioritizing them. And it's like, well, I guess we'll go do something that sounds interesting and just see where the plot hits us. Yeah, aside from being overwhelming, it can also offer too many options for a single party. You know, you have different PCs who have different motivations, and if you have five quests, you could end up with everyone wanting to do a different quest first. Yeah, or or you get into this like decision fatigue of trying to weigh what's the best one to do or the right order and figure it all out, and it's just like it doesn't really matter. What you really needed was to take a step forward in some direction. Right. And, you know, maybe you have a party that that there is a leader who steps up and says, we will do this. But if you're like most groups, uh, there's going to be a lot of time spent, like hand wringing about what do we do first. So just make the options more linear. If your party has the option of, you know, checking in with the garrison or meeting a wizard in a tower or scouting goblins on the outskirts of the town or joining a pit fighting club. You take the pit fighting club. Well, obviously. Well, I don't know who doesn't do that. Yeah. Okay. So after you do the pit fighting club, then what? (laughs) Well, you've already selected one or two. Great. In the meantime, while they are doing that, those other options are not available until the first one or two are resolved. Right. And and that's that can be as easy as that NPC happens to be out, you know, like away on business or whatever at the time they come to visit. Or it could be that like, you know, the NPCs talk to each other and like, you should finish that first and I will wait for you. You know, like you can have it work either way. Yeah, exactly. You're in the pit fighting club right now. Great. Uh, the garrison is not interested in dealing with someone who's involved in blood sports. But, right. you know, as soon as you've collected all your money with that, then they're fine with it. X, right. X blood sports yeah, is like, fine. I, when you take my job, I want you to do my job. I don't want you splitting between other people. Right. I think you see this sometimes in video games where they're like, you seem really busy now. Come back when you're more free. Well, no, in video games, you just stack as many quests as you can and try and do them all at the same time, right? It's like this exhausting sort of like a travel time management experiment. Well, yes, that's because all the quests are nested. Yeah, well, right, yeah. And also because modern video games have very frustrating open world structures. If your party still can't decide what they want to do first, you can just have one of their patrons or, you know, if they're uh, part of the Night Watch or something, have a superior, just assign them a task if they're really getting off track. You know, um, I need you to guard this caravan. Go do that now. And of course, that immediately precludes anything else happening in town. Yeah, you can also use time limits. So you can create a rough order of priority for the PCs by saying if they don't do something soon, they lose the option to do it. If I have to get an answer to this question or whatever in the next three days, then I'm naturally going to prioritize that ahead of something where I have a couple weeks or maybe even longer period of time to go explore. Right. Or if you have a party who's out in the jungle 
and you know they tend to be wishy-washy and they're thinking okay we're kind of lost i don't really know if we're going the right direction maybe we should just backtrack and you're sitting there looking at the map going oh you just need to keep going forward right Uh, explain to them that they really need to get somewhere by nightfall and they know that going back is not going to get them there exactly and don't be afraid to move the goalposts while, you know, your party is sort of like moving blindly throughout this story. So they don't know if they're moving toward moving the plot forward. So you can just swing locations around so that they get there when you want them to get there. If you need the journey to be longer, great. The destination is somewhere else. If it's shorter, well, then taking a left and going to the dark lake was the absolutely the right choice. Right, right. And have those quest givers be a little more proactive if you have a party that's sort of losing their way so for example in 5e and tomb of annihilation uh, no spoilers but there are multiple npcs in the adventure that know the location of the final dungeon that the pcs are supposed to locate and there are options for having those npcs essentially just tell the party where it is at some point now they're not going to do that right off the bat because they have no motivation to do that but eventually that can certainly build and it doesn't need to be that the party says hey you do you know where this location is they could actually just volunteer that info right so another common problem that groups run into with published adventures is suffering from arbitrary death or failure um so especially with older adventures, you can run into the uh, insta-death <laughs> uh, situation where you don't get a saving throw and you've stuck your hand into the mouth of the green demon and now you don't have a hand, right? Like, you just lose because you engaged with the adventure. Right, or what, what's one of those early adventures? I think it's, there's like a tunnel 10 feet up on the wall and you can like boost someone up to look inside it, but instantly no save as soon as someone does that they get attacked by ghouls, paralyzed, and dragged in, and they're just dead. <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> or I guess it's technically like a save or die. Like if you fail the paralysis, you get right. the, the saving though, you get pulled in and you die. Right. So don't do that. Like take out the insta death with no save and really pare down on those like saver dies, especially at low levels. Yeah. Um and, and when something is dangerous like that, telegraph it, right? Give saving throws or uh give skill checks to sort of get a sense of what's going on before they actually step headfirst into a trap, literally, in that case. Yeah, maybe they can actually hear some scratching or rustling or moaning sounds coming from that tunnel. Maybe the uh, maybe the demon's mouth is full of inky blackness. In fact, it's so dark. It's, it's darker than anything you've ever seen before. At that point, if you're sticking your hand in, well, you know, maybe you're not that bright. Yeah, it's okay to just say... It seems dangerous to just touch this. Okay, well, I'm going to do that. Okay, now you lose your hand. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I told you it was dangerous. (laughs) It's an easy way to take care of those chaotic neutral characters. What's the worst thing that could happen? (laughs) Now you know. You can get in a situation where if the party fails a few perception checks, they end up with a much less treasure or magic items than the module is expecting them to have. So, you know, you're moving through the dungeon, and often, especially in older modules, but actually even really in new ones, you'll get um, a DC 15 investigation check. Notice is a secret door, and inside that secret door is, you know, some other enemy or uh, like a treasure hoard. Mm -hmm. Um, Inside the desk in a false bottom is, you know, uh, 150 gold pieces. But a lot of modules put the bulk of the loot in these hidden places 
And if you don't end up spending enough time to find them, or if sometimes even if you do end up spending enough time, but you just happen to roll poorly, you just don't get those items. Yeah, I hate that stuff. And that was a, a problem in third edition adventures as well. Was like, cool, I paid for this adventure. It's got a lot of cool ideas in it. And like, because the dice didn't work out, I don't get to share those cool ideas with the players. Hold on, screw that. Like, that door's not secret anymore, right? Like, it's only, it's secret to anybody who isn't a PC. It's well concealed, but you're a PC, so you see it. Go do the cool thing behind that door and get eaten by the dragon. Right. It's a secret door, but half the dungeon's behind it. Right. <laughs> What's the point of that? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so so that stuff, like, let the rule of cool win here, right? Um, highlight that it was secret or whatever it is, you know, like, highlight where these things were hidden, give the context for it, but then... You searched, you find. If you really hate the idea of that and you you know want to make it so that they do miss out on some things, you can at the end maybe have an NPC present them with a reward that sort of makes up for some of the treasure that they missed out on. Yeah, that's fine if it's just like gold, but it's really frustrating when that's items that are themed to the dungeon or, mm-hmm. or maybe that have their own story within the dungeon. Or XP. It's tough to have the, the NPC be like, oh, and uh, you level up. Right. <laughs> <laughs> And then it's also important to look at the capabilities of your party and make sure that there's multiple ways past some roadblock. So, you know, if the written adventure assumes that somebody speaks gnomish and you know you don't have a gnomish speaker, uh, time to figure out some other way of dealing with it, right? This is a great time for a useless dagger of common speech. (laughs) (laughs) Or, as it were, a dagger of gnomish speech. (laughs) Right, or a scroll of comprehend languages or or don't make it so that the only way that you can get the information that you need is to speak an obscure language right. that like the party had no way of knowing it needed to take and there's no way to take every language so you're just arbitrarily being punished yeah you can you can turn that into a, uh, a kind of a, a comedic touch of you know you both speak past each other until you finally settle on a language you both speak yeah <laughs> So if you're in a particular kind of group, there are special things you'll need to do to a module, even if it's great as written. So if you've got a large group, you'll actually need to add additional uh, information or challenge to a module because they're typically written for between four to six players. So one thing you can do is replace some extraneous NPCs in the story with actual PCs. You know, maybe even give them the same or a similar backstory. You know, ask someone, hey, you know, there's a there's a character in here who uh, was a, a farmer and, uh, you know, has this tidbit of information. Is someone interested in actually playing that or having that be their backstory? And, you know, you can still be whatever character you want. Another thing to be to keep in mind, and we talked about this just a couple episodes ago with with playing large parties, but you will need to ramp up the combat difficulty. Um, it's probably better to make them Uh, meatier combatants than it is to just add more since you have more players it's probably better to make combats more of a centerpiece rather than uh, you know a more voluminous thing so uh, a couple more difficult encounters versus many uh, relatively easy encounters yeah because you know combat is usually the thing that takes the longest anyway so if you increase the number of encounters or the size of them then you're just sort of dragging it out even longer like a a normal encounter a normal combat encounter is going to take longer with a large group and now you've lengthened it even more right another thing alongside combat is to uh, make sure that you increase the experience or treasure gains otherwise you're going to run short so 
there is a there's a school of thought that would say keep everything the same and let everybody level up slower and that will help kind of balance things out in reality it doesn't always work that way uh the math isn't that tight and you end up with a grittier slower game yeah. uh, they just can't do the things they want to do as quickly as they should be able to right no one ends up having access to fifth level spells or whatever right or if you think about when you get to the final boss like the module assumes that you have four level 15 pcs to fight back tiamat okay having six level 11 pcs is makes it much much harder but possibly impossible just because you can't overcome her saves. Right. Yeah, your your DCs are, are all garbage and you have plus one weapons. Um, and then I also think it's important with a large party to make sure that your players are grouping their motivations together so that they can all pursue like the same number of plot threads, right? So instead of being stretched in seven to 10 directions, they're still being pulled in the four to six directions, but they're just multiple PCs interested in this particular thread. Yeah, it ties together well with uh, sort of replacing some of the NPCs. So if you think about, um, if you look at the fifth edition Tomb of Annihilation, there are, I think, eight or 10 guides that you can hire in the initial city and they will become a party member uh, they'll get a share of the XP and they, they, they travel around with you. If one of those is actually, if some of the players are actually playing some of the guides, the module has already assumed that you will have that number of people in your party so they can just be the guide. And you can either have them play the guide that's in the um, uh, adventure, or you could just swap them out and say that one of the guides is this random NPC who happens to have, you know, the survival skill and and some like uh, in-game knowledge right or um the in uh, out of the abyss everyone starts as a prisoner in the underdark and you've got a ton of npcs there yeah a whole rogues gallery (laughs) how does how does that module balance the fact that you could you could take everyone with you or you could take no one with you um it balances it by not expecting you to actually fight Mm. Uh, it expects you to run gotcha um so it's yeah it's more about creating diversion and you're supposed to kind of get a sense of which which of the npcs are going to actually come with you and which of them are just going to be useful distraction so i think it's actually easy enough to swap them out for pcs you know um if you have eight players then you just give someone some of the same motivations or you're like hey does anyone want to play Surf neblin yeah that one that one's a little tough because they're all supposed to have these sort of secret backstories that are revealed um through the course of role play and and i mean you could easily spend like a session or two sort of digging into all that stuff um as you're kind of gathering the information and and stuff that you need to stage the escape and there's also a ton of like backstory i mean this is basically the first arc of the rogue trader game that we played right mm-hmm. of, of dynasty and warranted i i ripped off a lot of that sort of subtext so you know, you lose something of the adventure if you just give that to the players for free because they don't get to explore with the NPCs. Um, that said, when you have more people, it's it's often a lot more difficult to engage with all those NPCs anyway. Um, so you might might actually just merge the NPCs together. Yeah, and then you are also beginning with similar or the same motivations, both for the party and then anyone else who comes along, right? We're all in jail. Right. So if you have a small group, you want to think about doing the opposite. So this might be a case where you give the players an NPC as a companion. Um, you don't want to, probably don't want to get too close to the DMPC sort of role where yeah. you're actually playing a PC. 
but um, it's a good idea to give them, you know, a, a support character, basically. Yeah. Um, again, in this situation, you could just have the party run one or two of the fellow prisoners in out of the abyss and you know they will join the party as essentially loyal companions right yeah um same thing with the the guides you know usually the way you play um tomb of annihilation is everyone runs their character and you as the gm also run um whatever guide they decide but you know with two or three players just let them sort of confer or decide what the guide is going to do uh, it can also be helpful to lower combat difficulty or remove a few of the like extraneous mook enemies, right? The ones that aren't supposed to be huge threats, but are sort of meat to be grinded. Yeah, those are only really there to make sure that the party of four to six players doesn't have uh, action economy advantage over a smaller number of more powerful enemies. So since you won't, as a small party, just take those out. Yep. Um, and then I think it's also important to tailor the loot that you get from uh, for for a smaller group. So make sure that the items they're getting are going to be useful because they don't have as many places to put those items. So, you know, uh, a useless magic item is basically no reward at all. Right. You also probably need to drop in more uh, healing items or, or whatever it is that allows um, this in this particular game system for you to regain your resources. Um, but yeah, it's it's important to remember that, you know, if... If the module is saying, okay, there's going to be a plus one long sword and then like a backbiter spear and then this kind of shield, if you have a large enough party, someone's probably going to be able to use that. It's very likely. But with a small party, you could end up with things that no one can use. Right. Even if your party is just four to six players, you know, the normal amount for a normal module and you're okay with the module you can change or adjust things depending on the kinds of encounters or games that your particular group really likes. You know, if for some reason your group is much more focused on roleplay and really isn't a fan of combat or puzzles or exploration, you know, any of those, then you can swap one out for the other. You know, the the way modules are really set up is there's a, there are a series of obstacles. You know, if there's going to be a combat in a particular room of a dungeon... That could just as easily be a, a puzzle that uses up some sort of resource and will slow down the party in the same kind of way without them having to go through the process of, uh, I roll dice and uh, I attack and uh, I take damage. Yeah, likewise, if you know that your players like to uh, talk their way out of combats rather than actually fight them, um, make sure that you're looking at it and kind of planning ahead for what that role play would, would feel like and what the consequences would be of that as they move forward through the adventure. Yeah, I would even go so far as maybe to tweak some NPC stats. Like Usually what you'll see is, okay, the Hobgoblin Warlord has like high strength and high dexterity and low intelligence and low wisdom. I would, you know, jack up their mental stats and maybe lower their physical stats. Uh, so there will be a more interesting, fun challenge to parlay with but if it does come down to combat, they're not also amazing at everything. <laughs> yeah, that dumb brute that's supposed to be a big boss fight could actually be a uh, a finger-twirling mastermind. <laughs> right. <laughs> Battle of wits, you say. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Another thing that you can run into is changing too much of the early adventure without keeping an eye for what impacts that could have later on. Um, so especially if you don't have a chance to read the entire module before you run it, um, default to running it as written before you go around changing things. You don't want to run into a situation where um, 
the twist at the end of the adventure makes no sense because you didn't do the setup work in the early acts. Yeah, and also if you think about it just in, in terms of the amount of work that you need to do, sure, on pawn first read you might think, oh, people are going to hate this and I don't like it. But, you know, we've done enough of this to realize that things play out differently in game than they necessarily look on the page. So try it out first. You'll have a better idea of where the module author is coming from and then you'll know what needs to be changed and what can be left alone and save yourself a bunch of headache. Yeah, the times that I that I do run published adventures, I find that I am much better at running the adventure at the end than I was at the beginning. <laughs> because I have a sense of the group and their play style and also like the direction of the module is much clearer and I'm sort of getting all of those things aligned over time. So another reason you might want to adapt a published adventure is you have an old module. First edition, second edition D&D, old traveler stuff. Um, and you want to play it. Because a lot of this stuff was was amazing. You may love the storyline. You may love the setting. A lot of us have a ton of nostalgia about some of these uh, old modules. And we want to we wanna live them again. I find it rude that you say only old modules could, could do this. Because I did it with Out of the Abyss for a totally different game system and genre <laughs> in the Dynasty and Warranty campaign. That's just stealing. You're just stealing. Okay, yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> the Dynasty and Warranty campaign is totally stolen, by the way. <laughs> Not a single original idea in there until we got to random tables. See, I thought you were going to bring up Sunless Citadel, and I was about to be like, dude, that's really old now. Well, I know. No. Sunless <laughs> Citadel is still my favorite. Um, one thing that is different about a lot of those older adventures, though, is that the design was... Uh, loose, <laughs> would you say? There's, there's, yeah. there's a lot of suggestion. <laughs> and some of the suggestions are terrible. They're not good. <laughs> I think there's a, there's a period in um, in Dead Gods, Monty Cook's module for Planescape, which I, I've talked about this before. I love Dead Gods. Um, but I think, yeah, there's one point where it's like, oh, you know, if the, if the party wanders off in this direction you know they'll they'll be killed by visages and they'll die and the universe ends essentially which is right it's like but wait there's no, no indication that they shouldn't go in that direction yeah maybe put a couple a uh, couple warning signs along the path right. like right oh, a golem maybe <laughs> or at least gold in the opposite direction right <laughs> yeah yeah, they tend to have tons of the problems that we've already talked about uh, earlier in this episode. So when you're looking at an old module, um, maybe you're running in the same system. You know, maybe you're still running second edition D&D. &D. Probably more likely is you are updating it to run in, you know, Pathfinder or fifth edition or something like that. So when you're reading through it, take note of the best or the most iconic parts and keep those. So in Dead Gods, for example, the Wand of Orcus plays a big role. You know, it's a it's an artifact, and the amazing thing, or one of the amazing things it can do is one-shot PCs. You know, like, if you fail a save against it, you just die, right? You are at zero hit points, and you die. Um, keep that in. The Wand of Orcus should be able to do that. It's not the Wand of Orcus if it can't do that, even though it goes against our no insta-death rule. Because, you know, by the time the PCs have an op an opportunity to confront it they it should have been telegraphed so much like don't touch the wand of orcus right. it kills things yeah yeah in the sunless citadel chain uh shatter spike is a stupid weapon it's dumb i hate it <laughs> i mean it's a it's a sword that's good at sundering which is the worst thing you can do to magic items <laughs> but like it wouldn't be sunless citadel if shatter spike didn't make an appearance 
you know like i think when i was playing the 5e version like the the coolest thing about shatter spike even though it's dumb is that uh like sir brayford used it and just like chopped my longbow in half right and i was like what <laughs> uh, uh uh okay crap right <laughs> and i was like do i pull out my rapier well he's just gonna come chop that in half right so uh falcon punch <laughs> right <laughs> run away you know what you can't chop in half a dagger being thrown at you <laughs> yeah like, well uh, maybe you could slash it sir braver is probably a ninja is a right. ninja paladin <laughs> right and slash it out of the sky the then you're like okay item interaction rules uh draw weapon attack sheath weapon <laughs> right drop weapon <laughs> right. Uh, another thing that can be helpful when you're uh adapting old modules is to ignore all of the the xp and advancement track within the module and just move to milestones so that you're staying in line with the encounters that you're using in your um, adaptation rather than the sort of arbitrary numbers that work for an old or different system. Yeah, it's really tough to be like, okay, so they're fighting three succubi and that was worth this much XP and I'm going to dig up the like first edition monster manual. Um, but how, what does that translate to in terms of what level they're going to get to? I guess they're going to be like around fifth level now, but what is that in the power curve in fifth edition? Oh God. Just pick a point that they're supposed to start, pick a point where they're supposed to end, and then pick some interesting milestones where they will just level up. Right. And, you know, maybe that is right after defeating a mini-boss. Maybe that's right before defeating a mini-boss. Whatever you think will be most dramatic and interesting for your party. And then the other thing to make sure you do is update the difficulties. So whatever whatever you map uh, between, like, DCs in different editions or or even, like, the way that challenges are measured, right? Like if you went from a D&D to like a Genesis uh, or a Savage Worlds, like you you just want to make sure that you're keeping things roughly on par of uh, challenge and frustration level. Um, and then likewise, take enemies that either closely match abilities or at least closely match level of difficulty so that you stay sort of in line. Yeah, it's a lot easier if you're going from like an old D&D module to a new D&D module because you just... Uh, swap out the uh, the creatures themselves, right? An old succubus is probably similar to a new succubus. Yeah, like a, a succubus moving from CR9 to CR11 across editions is probably not going to be the end of the world. You know, goblins didn't suddenly go from CR one quarter to CR5. <laughs> you know, like they tend to stay roughly in line of difficulty within a game uh, across editions. Yeah, and one thing you get a lot in old modules is you're not really supposed to fight like all of the bad guys at one time right you know you're assaulting a like giant fortress you're not supposed to face all 19 giants that are inside there at the same time you need to quietly like separate one out and then take it out and then quietly maneuver and get cause infighting right and that doesn't have that much to do with the specific combat capabilities or the specific numbers uh on um an enemy sheet but if you are going through a module and you, if you really want to like revamp an old module, then I think you can do a lot of find replace where, you know, if, if it's, um, you know, a skill check is a DC 13 or whatever. Great. Pick a DC in your new edition or whatever you're playing. Uh, and then just every time in that module, you see DC 13, swap it out for the same dc right you don't need to, to pick anything else sort of the same thing uh this thing has like negative two ac uh in second edition okay cool. if you're switching it to genesis like 17 <laughs> right or um or like that is uh a nemesis two you know right 
just keep that the same across the board and you don't have to rewrite every single encounter after a while it really just becomes like plug 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 done right so to kind of draw this topic to a close then uh always keep in mind as as the dm you know your players best right um and and as you go through an adventure you will learn more about them so use your best judgment right uh aim for what will be the most fun there's no reward at the end for closely adhering to the exact letter of the adventure. Uh, this isn't Ready Player One. Yeah, like the the reward at the end is did everybody have a great time? Yeah, um, if you're using a pre-published adventure, then probably you've or hopefully you've talked about it with your group. Um, whether that is someone being like, "Oh wow, I really love Expedition to the Barrier Peaks. I would love to play that again." Um, you know, in in this game setting that that we're playing, that I think that would be really awesome. Or you're saying, "Hey, I'm interested in like running maybe Curse of Strahd. Maybe we're doing Tomb of Annihilation. Like, what what are you guys feeling? What what's most interesting to you?" And they're going to say, "Oh, wow, I love this about that. Here's why I want to do it. Oh, I love Expedition to the Barrier Peaks because of the exploration or because of the mystery. Uh, and those are the things that you can make sure that you." hold on to you know those touchstones even if you change all the other numbers behind the screen no one's going to care because you are giving them the thing that they actually want out of this experience which is meepo well yeah yeah obviously you know if you give meepo gauntlets of ogre strength he is amazing all right on that note (laughs) (laughs) do you hear that ishan uh yeah it sounds like a, a yapping dog that's the sound kobolds make isn't it do they bark? I think they bark now. Okay. I think they're more dog than... Well, they used to be more dog. They're more lizardy now. Yeah, yeah. They're like baby dragons. Who bark. Anyway, uh, time to move on to the Character Creation Forge. But before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane, at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan, at Evil Sans Carne. That's Malice Minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show, at TPTCast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrillCast.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram, at TotalPartyThrill. All right, so this week in the Character Creation Forge, we are building the Master of the Midnight Hunt. Ishan, what is this? So we have combined two subclasses from Xanathar's Guide, which I don't know that we've used either of these yet. Nope. This is a Gloomstalker Ranger 13, Shadow Sorcerer 7. This is a Hunter of the Night. Darkwing Duck, I guess. Yeah, Yeah, I like that. I like that. Okay, so the Gloomstalker Ranger gets us some uh, handy low-light abilities, if you will. We get Favorite Enemy, we get Natural Explorer, the basics of uh, of Ranger, but we also get Umbral Stalker, which gives us Dark Vision. And makes us invisible via Dark Vision from other creatures, which is great because we're going to spend the vast majority of our time either in the dark or in the darkness spell. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we get Extra Attack... Uh, Hunter's Mark, Pass Without Trace. At higher levels, the ranger gets access to conjure animals and conjure woodland beings. So, you know, forget the Beastmaster. You can actually just, you know, have your eight wolves hanging out with you. Yep, you'll also get Iron Mine, which gives you uh, proficiency in wisdom saves. And Stalker's Flurry will make you much more reliable with uh, your attacks. If you miss one, you'll get to reroll. Yeah, that's your uh, ranger's conditional third attack is on a miss, you get a third attack. (laughs) (laughs) So then the Shadow Sorcerer will give you Strength of the Grave, which is basically 
death ward on yourself once per day, which is great. So when you drop to zero, you'll come back with one hit point. Uh, and then you can also create darkness that you can see through. Yeah, take that, warlock. Right. Don't need devil sight anymore. <laughs> I've made a pact with shadows. At level six, you'll get Hound of Ill Omen, which comes with a sorcerer, but it's just, I feel so much more thematic for a ranger that specializes in fighting in the dark and or underground. Yeah, it's like a conjured animal companion. And it also is really good at tracking things. Right. <laughs> uh, you'll end up with fourth level sorcerer spells. Of course, probably the greatest one here is Hold Person, which is going to give you uh, critical hits on any of your ranger melee attacks. And I believe the Hound actually also gives disadvantage on uh, saving throws versus your spells. So your hold person is going to have a much more likely chance of actually working. Yep. Then you'll also get some useful spells like Shield, Sleep is great at low levels, Blur, great defensive spells, uh, Mind Spike, and Misty Step. Yeah, Mind Spike is also really great because it means that you can track uh, the creature, uh, you know, if you haven't killed it yet. Uh, I like that Sorcerer gives you a lot of abilities that let you uh, track even better than a generic Ranger would be able to do. And also, even if it's not one of your favorite enemies. Right. Uh, you'll get things like Shadow Blade and Dominate Beast. And of course, like you're, you have fourth level Sorcerer spells. So if you really want, you can cast Fireball. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so Shane, who is your Master of the Midnight Hunt? So my Master of the Midnight Hunt is half human but tainted by a shade so still clinging on to mortality but sort of slowly becoming one with like the ethereal and darkness he has taken it upon himself to sort of uh hunt the things that go bump in the night because he is uniquely adapted to do that you know so so good of heart pure of heart perhaps the reason that he's even able to uh resist this sort of magical malady that he's suffering from um, but uses that ability to sort of, uh, you know, take the fear out of darkness. That is Darkwing Duck. I know. <laughs> Sorry. I think you need a cloak of the bat so you can flap in the night. Uh, yeah, also Cape of the Mountebank. <laughs> uh, how about your Master of the Midnight Hunt? So my Master of the Midnight Hunt is a Master of Illusions. Um Back in earlier editions of D&D, shadow magic was actually a type of illusion magic. You could uh, use shadows to make uh, objects, uh, to mimic other spells. So she uses the the shadows to weave illusions around herself. Um, the, the reason that other creatures can't use dark vision to see her is because she has masked herself in shadow. The reason that... Uh, she is able to cast hold person is because she um, has clouded the mind of her enemy and convinced them that they they can't move it's it's like a phantasmal presence rather than an actual like physical manifestation of shadows okay and uh, she is less pure of heart than yours I think Uh, she has a vendetta Uh, she easily could have gone vengeance paladin because the things that go bump in the night are not picky when it comes to their victims yeah and she lost everything when she was quite young uh needed to uh, live on her own in the wilderness for her own safety and of course there uh learned the ways of the ranger learned the ways of the wild but her affinity for magic 
blossomed later and she realized that she could use it uh, not not in opposition right ranger sorcerer is not something that you see a lot uh, but uh, to make herself a, a better uh, stealthier melee combatant and to well, wreak vengeance on uh, those she remembers have harmed her and people like her i like how we have both created sort of victorian gothic heroes I mean, uh, shadow well, characters. Yeah, right? like these both belong in Curse of Strahd. <laughs> uh, this would be also great with the Monster Hunter. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Before we wrap up, we want to take a moment to say thank you to our Patreon supporters. Yeah, your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every single week. So if you'd like to learn more, you can check out our rewards at patreon.com slash totalpartythrill. And we also have an iTunes review to read this week. Um, this is Want to Be a Better DM? Listen. Five stars by Squirrel from Next Tuesday. Shane and Nishin consistently give food for thought and solid DM advice while being entertaining. If you're struggling with something at your table, search the backlog and they'll likely have a show to give you more insight. Also, I met these guys at a con, and if it weren't clear from any given ep that they are solid dudes who are passionate about the hobby, let me assure you that they were ready to engage with a total stranger about his convoluted path into role-playing and make a good conversation out of it. Now, if only they'd change their sign-off to sound more confident, because their Forge characters are certainly thrilling. Oh, well, that's adorable. I will say, everyone we've met at a con has been great. I don't understand why they keep listening after meeting us, though. Yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, you two? (laughs) I I expected you would be better. (laughs) Right. I mean, I don't listen to the show, I mean, because right. I, I know us. Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to give you the credit. Right. We've also made clear neither of our wives listen to the show. Yep. <laughs> also, we're not friends. <laughs> well, yeah, obviously. All right. What do we have planned for next week's episode? We're talking about defeating the players. And in the character creation forge? We're building the comeback kid. Well, that's it for episode 139 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we lived up to our name and our sign off. But either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. We have definitely lived up to our name. Thanks for listening.